When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If there's one joke that defines my guest on today's show, it has to be this one. So as you can imagine, it was a little weird growing up in the Midwest with this face and that family. I mean, I literally knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I could not be more excited to be kicking off Pride Month with the hilarious Joel Kim Booster. In addition to being one of the funniest stand-up comics working right now, Joel has also written for some of my all-time favorite shows, including Billy on the Street, Big Mouth, and The Other Two. More recently, he has gotten in on the podcast game, co-hosting Urgent Care with his friend and fellow comedian Mitra Juhari, and tackling the downfall of American Apparel on Spotify's Flameout series. Joel likes to play the, quote, hot idiot on stage, but as you will quickly learn from this conversation, he is actually incredibly insightful. So let's get to it now. Here's me with Joel Kim Booster. So yeah, have you uh, have you been able to do much stand up in in recent uh, weeks, months? Uh? You know, it's it's only starting to come back for me now. I've done a couple of outdoor shows over the last month or so, um, and it's been good. I mean, it's been wild. It's I feel a little bit bad for the audiences. I feel like they're they're paying money to watch me uh, learn how to do this again. But um, <laughs> I think everybody's just happy to be at a show in general, so it works out for both people. But I'm headlining at the Irvine Improv for the first time it'll be my first headlining set in over a year well over a year at this point <laughs> and so I'm, pr- I'm i'm excited and i'm very nervous about that yeah i mean it's crazy just how upended stand-up has been um you know because i think most stand-ups who i talk to it's like you know you have to you have to do it on such a consistent basis to to stay good so how have you what has it been like in these you know first outdoor shows trying to get back to it um, I mean, it is a little bit like riding a bike. It, it's not unlike that. I mean, there's there's muscle memory. It's a, it's a bit like, you know, being out of the gym for a couple of months and then coming back. And, um, you know, when you lose muscle, it's way easier to gain it back than to build new muscle. So it's sort of what that's how I'm viewing stand up a little bit. Um, I'm not pushing myself to do a lot of new material, to be honest. I write on stage. And so the pandemic has been really difficult for me in terms of new material because I haven't had the audiences to work shit out in front of. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who sits down in a coffee shop and says like, oh, let's write a new joke about the Iraq war. And then, you know, <laughs> sets out to do that. I, it really is something that happens a lot of times organically on stage, at bar shows, at the, these like showcase shows around L.A. and New York that I will then eventually take out on the road. Has there been anything in the in the past year that sort of inspired you material wise or sort of things that you want to talk about on stage, even if you haven't gotten there yet? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that have happened. I mean, my dad died, <laughs> which is is not funny, but there's a lot of stuff around my dad dying, and I, I'm my style of comedy is very open and honest and very connected to what's happening in my life. And you know, I've in terms of what I want to talk about, I I want to talk about grief, you know, and it's it's a it's a high hurdle to to clear in terms of making it funny, um, especially because I think you have to get over the, that initial shock reaction of like, oh, you know, and that's not what you want to hear as a comedian. But, um, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited to sort of process my own grief um, through what I love to do most, which is stand up. Yeah, I mean, and I, I know from watching so much of your comedy, um, that that's a was probably a complicated relationship with your For father. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think a big part of your origin story as a comedian and all that is growing up in this conservative evangelical Christian family, you know, adopted all that. How do you feel like, uh, how do you feel like that, that those beginnings kind of have shaped your, your sense of humor, um, you know, in, in general? Um, I mean, I've always felt a little bit on the outside. My POV has always been a little bit on the outside. And I think that's definitely shaped a lot of my comedy because I, I don't feel ever sort of, I never feel in place. You know, I never feel like I necessarily belong in any one setting. I, I always feel a little bit like the odd man out. And I think that has shaped a lot my perspective on comedy a lot. You know, I, I don't view things like other people a lot of times, you know, and so um, my perspective is a little skewed. It's a little goofy. It's a little, um, you know, outside the norm and, and to left of center, whatever you want to say. And so that's helped me a lot because I think like one of the biggest things for me comedically is just presenting something that's so completely normal, like the experience of dating, but can flipping it on its head. And, and the specificity of my experience and my identity is, is something that makes it, I think, a little bit more comedically rich. In terms of, you know, thinking about trying to talk about your, your dad um, and his, his passing away on stage, how do you even go about that in terms of, you know, you said you, you, you write on stage. So does that, does that mean going on stage and just starting to talk about it? Or do you, do you think about it ahead of time? I mean, that's, that's, that's how I did it. I, you know, these few shows that I've, I have had in around LA, I've, I've broached it a couple of times and, you know, um, it is a, it's, it's a lot of just observational. It's a lot of stories. I mean, listen, what happened the night before my dad's funeral, a guy shot his load in my eye and gave me like pink <laughs> eye basically before my dad's funeral. And that on its face is like, funny enough. And so part of the joke writing process for me is just telling that story on stage and, and figuring out and processing it sort of as I'm telling the story and finding those moments that are punchlines, you know, and, and writing the setups and the punchlines around the actual real life story. And that's how so much of my standup, you know, has come to be is, is just from, you know, me telling a story and than figuring out how to structure it like a joke. That sounds like a scene from a, you know, a pilot of a, of a comedy show, right? I mean, it was, it was, is exactly that. I showed up to my dad's funeral with a giant red eye and my entire family was like, what's going on with your fucking <laughs> eye? And I just had to be like, well, I've been crying a lot. Um, and, and that's, which is true, which was also true, but it just, I don't think that's what caused the red eye. Um, unfortunately. And even if you didn't grow up in a super Christian family, most people would not uh, be, be no. eager to tell that story at a funeral. So I want to kind of go back to how you got into stand-up comedy in the first place. Um, what was your, you, can you talk about your first time performing on stage and, and where you were and what it was like and, and how it went? 
So I was a part of a theater company in Chicago. That's what I moved to Chicago to do after college, which was was theater. I wanted to write and I wanted to act. And um, those were, you know, I, I, I hooked up with this, this motley crew of theater artists that also, they all happened to be like improvisers as well on the side. And we were making a lot of, you know, theater, creating plays, producing them. And after one of the shows that we were doing, which was called Five Lesbians Eating a Quiche, <laughs> it's both the title and a description of the show, which it actually starred Beth Stelling, which was an early, she was like burgeoning in Chicago, sort of blowing up in Chicago in her own way. This is right before she moved. And um, I just remember talking about how frustrated I was with outside of the theater company when I had auditioned places for commercials or television or anything like that in Chicago. It was a very narrow sort of set of roles that I was being offered as an Asian person. I mean, we weren't having the conversations about diversity in Hollywood that I think we are now, certainly, um, way back in, in 2011. And, um, you know, I remember Beth was the one who was sort of like, well, you, you have these two skill sets. You are comfortable on stage and you write. Why don't you try doing stand-up, you know? And that's out. Uh, that felt like such a far away uh, goal for myself. Like it just, you know, I didn't, there weren't a lot of gay standups. There weren't a lot of Asian standups. There weren't a lot of people who were talking about the kind of shit that I wanted to talk about. It just felt like, sure, I could try it, but will there be an audience for it? Will people want to hear it? And I remember after one night of the shows, we, we had like an open mic night sort of variety show that, um, you know, all of the people from the show would do different things. Like people, you know, did music or did improv sketch, stuff like that. And they had a slot open and they were like, Joel, do you want to do something? And I was like, sure, I'll do stand up. And I did my first five minute, seven minute set that night and did a, um, and I crushed. <laughs> um, I got lucky. I mean, so many people have these like horrible stories about the first time they did stand up. And I think I got very lucky um, with my audience that night. And it just felt natural and, and freeing. And, you know, I ended up bombing for consistently for another year <laughs> after that when I tried it, you know, at other places. But it's so funny. I feel like this is now coming up on every episode of the show. But it is true that I think that the comedians, a lot of comedians do bomb their first time out. I think the ones who there's a consistency in the ones who become successful like you, where it is that experience of it's being great the first time, because then even if you bomb for the next year, you know what that feels like. And you're you're trying to you at least know what you're what you're going for. In yeah. Terms of, the, the it's, it's chasing. I mean, that's the thing. Like if I didn't have a great experience the first time, I don't think I would have continued doing it because the, the, the subsequent times were all so brutal that like I still all I wanted to do was get back to that moment of the first time of how good that felt that first time. And so it's just it's chasing a high is all it is. And then you get like, eventually you get little moments and little pops that happen that, that keep you going. And, and, um, it, it was totally a side hobby for so long. I still wanted to be a writer or an actor. And, um, it just, it took, it took a year or two years of doing it to slowly realize that like, Oh no, I like this better. This is the thing that I want to do. Was there some kind of uh, was there some kind of turning point or um, you know something that happened that made you feel like you you could do it uh, as a as a career? You know what? I don't know when that happened. I I don't actually think it happened for me. I don't think I actually believed that I could make it a career until I got Conan, honestly. And that was sev that was you know many years into doing stand-up. This is after I'd moved to New York to pursue stand-up full-time, you know, as full-time as it could be. I still had a 40-hour-a-week day job. But like, you know, I moved to New York because I wanted to get better at stand-up. 
And I, in the process of even, it, it was sort of in the midst of, of feeling like I was getting better at standup that I got Conan. And that was the first moment where I was like, huh, because it wasn't like, it wasn't some niche thing. Like it wasn't, uh, <laughs> you know, it was Conan. It was like a, a comedy nerd's dream to get that show particularly, you know? Um, and it was, it was the right person, I think, to sort of put his stamp of approval on me and say like you're good at this that made me really have the confidence to be like okay and I, I think like less than a year later I quit my day job and started you know doing it more I started headlining you know and touring and, and stuff like that and that's when it all started to piece together and be like okay maybe this is this is actually something I can do so what was the experience of actually doing Conan like for you that that first time it's it's it was surreal it's it's it all feels like a blur now honestly um i remember um just like it, it is the most unnatural like way to do stand up i mean now that i've done zoom shows that's <laughs> that certainly take, beats it but it just it feels so wild to be doing stand up in the daylight um to <laughs> The to a lights, studio yeah. to a bright lights studio audience cameras everywhere there's so much to think about and luckily it was a set that um you know i had been it was my it was my like fi my tight five you know like it was the first it was the first sort of tight five that i had put together that i used for showcases and tapes and stuff like that and like um so it was really really in my body um and i'm so thankful i didn't fuck it up <laughs> it really was like the first moment where i felt like okay, you're, you're actually really good at this and you can do this for a career. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is really one of the best, uh, late night standup debut sets that, I, that I've seen. Um, you know, you have your, your joke, which kind of became a signature, which is, I knew I was gay before yeah. uh, I knew I was Asian. How do you, how do you think about that joke now? Cause I think that became such a, uh, defining, uh, yeah. line line for you in a way. I mean, for me, it's like, it is sort of the, it's emblematic of the, of my writing style. It's emblematic of it's so it's so succinct and it so puts forth it's such a great introduction i think to audiences i miss being able to do that joke because <laughs> i i still have to explain that to audiences i still have to explain my background and and like sort of how i came to be i have to figure out new ways of doing it and but no way will ever be be as succinct and as as like crisp and sharp as like just coming out and saying i knew i was gay before i was asian um and the, the best part about it is it's true like a lot of the shit that i i prefer stuff that is like 100% true there's you know there's plenty of little like fibs and and uh extrapolations and things like that that happened in the set but like that is like my real lived experience of being a little gay adopted asian boy of knowing i liked boys before i even had a conception of race um in my head so yeah i missed that joke you also do a bit in that set where you start, you pretend to to start to cry and get emotional at the end, um, which really stood out to me rewatching it. I was pretty gay, um, and it was never more apparent than Christmas 1996. I wanted what every little boy in the nation wanted for Christmas. You guys know what it is. The Crimp and Curl Pony by the Cabbage Patch Company. My mom was super cool. She got it for me. I opened it up on Christmas morning. I just started crimping and curling right away. Um, my dad, less enthused, he looked at my mom and he was like, Janet, what the hell, like, why would you get him this girl's toy? This is a toy for girls. And my mom looked at my dad and was like, well, Ken, my brother Bob, he used to get baby dolls for Christmas, and now he's a pediatrician, so. <laughs> Case closed. And my dad, like, rightfully looked at my mom and was like, what the hell do you think he's gonna be, a fucking horse hair stylist? Like, what's the end game here, Janet? 
And, you know, I, I remember my dad saying that. And I remember thinking, is that a profession? Is that something that I can do? Like, does it require a certificate? Like, give me the full story, Dad. Can you talk a little bit about about doing that and why you, why you wanted to include that? Yeah, I mean, so that definitely points to the theater background because I remember when I was workshopping that joke, it was one of the first jokes I ever wrote that I like continued to do from the early days. Is I, I and I did it at this like sort of mixed media like underground art like showcase that wasn't necessarily for comedy specifically. It was a lot of storytellers. It was a lot of people writing, you know, little short dance pieces and theater pieces and like shadow puppets and all kinds of artsy bullshit. And somehow I found my way doing that show almost every Monday. It was a really freeing thing because like I didn't come up in the open mic scene in Chicago. Like I didn't, unlike a lot of standups in Chicago, like I didn't start doing open mics regularly until I moved to New York. And so I was doing these like weird theater art shows and the vibe was much less like get to the punchline. And I remember just like playing with that joke and playing with the the idea of it being a theater piece. Like, and what would, you know, what would, if this was the moth, you know, if this was like some, you know, artsy fartsy storytelling show, what would happen at this moment in this show? And it would be like, oh, you got to cry. Um, <laughs> and I love the fake out of it. And I loved, um, you know, and I love, uh, honestly, like, it's one of the things I spent fucking $40,000 a year in theater school to learn how to cry. <laughs> and I'll be damned if I don't use it at least once, you know, in the biggest moment of my life. So I'm glad that it was so effective. I love reading. I read all of my YouTube comments, by the way, which is such a mistake. But um, <laughs> my favorite ones on that video are the people who are like, damn, I thought he was really going to cry. And I'm like, okay, that's a victory. That's... <laughs> I don't think I'll ever write a better closer than that crimp and curl pony joke. I just don't think it's in me. Like, I, I'm worried that I'll never, I'll never have it. Even if it's a better joke or a good joke, I don't think I'll ever have as much fun ending a set as I will with that joke. Yeah, I, I also love, it sort of messes with the expectations of the audience and especially like a mainstream-ish audience of Conan of like how a, you know, gay person growing up with this family is supposed to feel and and then totally turning it on its head and and showing, you know, sort of that, that overconfidence that is part of your, your persona as well. I got to say too, I, um, when I was home, I was home for a while after my dad passed and, um, we, you know, of course busted out all the home movies and I saw the video of me opening up the crimp and curl pony <laughs> and, you know, that conversation was real that my dad, you know, my dad asking my mom why he, she bought me the crimp and curl pony, but my dad behind the camera, um, when he knew he, I could hear him was very like, tell me what this is, Joel. Like, you know, like I, I, it, it, <laughs> it, it looking back on it, I've, I realized like, oh, you know, my dad wasn't like a complete villain <laughs> in that piece <laughs> as much as I remember him being. I think he was a little bit more soft on the, the crimp and curl pony than I, than I actually give him credit for. There's this kind of, uh, conversation and, and thing that's come up on, on this show a few times about gay male stand-up comics and how there hasn't been the type of hugely successful gay male stand-up comic in the way that there have been with women. Um, you know, you think about people like Ellen and Wanda Sykes and 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 people like that. Um, is that something that you think about at all? Or do you do you have any um thoughts on on why that might be? Or is it even true? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely true. No one's really broken through in the way that any of those names that you've just mentioned have. Um, I think um, I think part of it is like a general discomfort with the way gay men have sex. I think that it, it's really hard to look at a gay man and not think about anal. Um, when you, when you like, when you are somebody, especially who presents as very gay, like I, I could see it, I could see it happening. There's, you know, actually I do know one, at least one uber successful, um, stand-up comedian that's closeted right now. And like, he doesn't come off as gay and he doesn't talk and he doesn't talk about his life in the same way that, you know, someone like I do. And so like, I do know that it's possible to happen, but I do think that there's a a price of, is that a price of the success that he doesn't talk about? Yeah, I think, I think definitely. Because I think like, I I also think though, that the question is a you know, the question is always asked, like, why hasn't there been a gay, you know, Ellen? Why hasn't there been a gay male Ellen or something like that? And it's like, well, there's only a couple, like, there's, you ask, you talk to comedy audiences, like, broad, broadly, and there's only, like, a handful of comedians that they'll be able to name. You know, Kevin Hart, Louis C.K., John Mulaney, Wanda, you know, and, and the list goes on a little bit, but, like, your average person in America is not able to name more than, you know, 10 comedians, probably, off the top of their head, especially or especially if you're only talking about comedians that are currently working and touring right now. And I think right now, like, the comedy audience is so fractured that, like, there used to be, like, one audience for stand-up comedy that everybody was pulling from, I feel. And now, it be, because of the internet and because, like, it's so easy to find your niche audience, like, there, it's it's made it more difficult for somebody to break through as, like, broadly, with broad appeal. Because, like, who wants to be... I don't necessarily want to have broad appeal. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily need or want to be for every single person. And, like, I make it work. You know, I, I tour all over the fucking country. I make it work in Michigan. I make it work in the South. I make it work in New York and L.A. too. People respond to my stuff. But it is, like, at the same time, like, I, I, I'm not looking for the same sort of, I'm not looking to be as relatable as John Mulaney is to millions and millions of people because it's just not me. It's just not my life, you know? Like, I try and find the stuff that is relatable about my experience and extrapolate it and and blow it up for the set. But, like, I'm never going to be the comedian that, like, everyone in middle America is flocking to see. And I'm okay with that. And I made my peace with that because I found a pretty great, you know, dope audience that that likes my shit. And if you did become that huge with without you know you, or you would have to change your material in some way or you would have to do yeah, something different. Yeah, I mean it's so crazy the number of times I've been like, you know, they've they've approached me about doing a show like Last Comic Standing back when that was a thing or America's Got Talent, you know, and these these shows that would probably propel me to being more of a of a big mainstream broad appeal comic, but I don't have the material for it. I don't like I couldn't do for however many weeks I need for network TV. No, it's hard enough for me to find five minutes to go back on uh, on late night, you know, like to find the five minutes to do late night is tough enough for me right now. Like so much of my stuff is about sex, is about drugs, is about uh, like just other sort of niche experiences that I have that like it just doesn't work for late night and so in that way like i'm a i'm a cable only audience baby and um (laughs) that's just sort of where i'm at and what i've made peace with coming up joel shares some big news about his gay rom-com trip co-starring saturday night lives bowen yang 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. We have had so many incredible stand-up comics on this show over the past couple of years, including Whitney Cummings, Patton Oswalt, Michelle Buteau, and so many others. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Joel Kim Booster. So you mentioned, you know, in the theater world that you felt you you had concerns about that being Asian was kind of a, a roadblock for you. Did you did you feel that in the comedy world? In a Early days, yeah, I think there there was sort of a an idea, especially like in Chicago and a little bit in New York too, of like we only need one of them on a lineup, you know, and that that goes for being gay too. I think like you know one of my best friends in comedy when I was coming up with was Mateo Lane, and I don't I think it was like years in before that either <laughs> of us were on the same show that wasn't specifically a gay show because there was this idea of like okay we got our woman we've got our gay guy we've got our person of color and that's all we need, um, you know the idea of having more than one on a show is like, oh, then it becomes a gay show or it becomes a, a female show or it becomes a, or, you know, a, a show about being a person of color. And it's like all of our perspectives are so different. We're, it's, it's as different as, you know, John Mulaney's is different from, from, you know, Drew Michaels. It's like, you know, why can't we be on the same show? So that was always, that was frustrating. And that did make it feel slightly limiting. It, it did feel like, you know, I wasn't competing with everybody. I was competing with the other five guys that I knew who were Asians in the city. And that that made it feel a little bit more frustrating. It just didn't feel fair sometimes. But that's changed a lot, I think, in the last couple of years. I, I mean, I'm I'm certainly more disconnected from like the open mic scene in, in the way that I was before. So maybe it hasn't changed. But from talking to people on the ground, it does feel like we're starting to get to a place where they're looking at the material and sort of putting together lineups based on on diversity of material and and pov rather than just like base identity signifiers it'll be interesting to see how much it's changed even you know in the last year since um since covid when everything starts up again because of everything that's happened in this past year and and all of that i know so many people who've quit who are like i'm done i don't even need to come back to stand up um yeah it's it's so it'll be interesting what the landscape is going to look like when we all get back to doing our, our, our thing again. That that was never something you uh, considered a quitting stand-up? No, I think I'm <laughs> stuck. I think I'm stuck for at least a while. I, I don't know what will happen. You know, I, 
I'm going to go back on tour again and, and see. But unless it feels really bad, I think I'm, I'm too addicted to that high. So I think I'm, gonna, I'm stuck with it for a while. I did see, you know, notice that you've you've gotten more and more into the the podcast uh, game in the past uh, past year, which makes sense because it's something you can do from home or from anywhere. What has that been like for you to to be doing more of those projects? Um, it's been it's been interesting. I never thought of that I would be a podcast guy. I enjoy <laughs> guesting on podcasts. I enjoy talking, but it is a, a sustained skill set to do this week after week. And like, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've been lucky that I've been able to do different stuff. Like, you know, I have my regular podcast, Urgent Care, which changes from week to week. It's an advice podcast. It's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's nothing but riffing on other people's problems, which is, feels like crowd work, honestly. Like it, it, it brings me a little bit of that. And then I get to do stuff like Flame Out, um, which is a little, which was a little bit more scripted and a little bit more, structured like they gave us all the research you know they gave us all the real facts and uh atsuka and i all we had to do was was riff on it and be funny and so like yeah it's, it's almost been, like mini documentary yeah it's it's exactly that it's a it's a documentary um just hosted by two goofy ass people and so <laughs> it's been it's been a real privilege i think to have outlets like that during this time because i don't know what i would do i would uh, i'd be much crazy i'd feel much crazier than i already do for yeah um, I wanted to ask about your uh, your debut album was called Model Minority, um, which is a phrase that I think has gained uh, popularity in the in the past uh, even couple months. Can you just talk about why you why you chose that title and what it what it meant to you and what what it means to you now? Yeah, I mean, I wish I would have saved that title for my first special, honestly, because <laughs> um, it seems a little bit more prescient now, doesn't it? Um, but for me, like, I don't know, it, it meant a lot to me at the time and still does because, you know, the model minority myth is something that I think has has really plagued um, the Asian American community for a while. It is a wedge that the powers that be want to pit us against other minorities by by sort of heralding us as the model minority for a number of reasons. And I don't fit that mold, you know, and I, I, I sort of feel like my entire set and my entire persona on stage is sort of a anathema to the model minority myth, you know, like I'm, I'm sort of dumb. <laughs> I'm hypersexual. That's your, that's your persona, at least. Yeah, that's the persona for sure. Not, not you. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's what we'll go with for sure. But yeah, and and so you know, I wanted it to be sort of uh, mocking that idea, but also like you know, it's funny when I first started out doing comedy. Um, a lot of my material was about how undesirable I was and how like I couldn't get a date, I couldn't get laid all this stuff. And like, it was a reflection of how I felt at the time, but it started to take over and become sort of um, as a snake eating its own tail. I didn't know where the material started and where my actual self-esteem sort of fit into that. Um, and it became really unhealthy. And I, I made a pivot sort of while I was in New York, just as a challenge to myself to just go on stage and be like, what would it be like if you were a comedian as a confident person? Because again, like you, you see most comics a lot of comics, it's an easier position to come into the set saying like, oh, aren't I pathetic? And then because the audience is a little bit more on your side versus coming into the set being like, aren't I fucking awesome? Like, don't I look great? Don't I, you know, <laughs> aren't I amazing? It's a, it's a more difficult p position to put yourself in because it, it, it sort of makes you, uh, the, the audience be like, oh, it's, I'm not sure about any of this. The audience has to believe it. Um, But I started, it really did change my conception of the way 
I felt about myself when I started doing that material. And so like model minority, there's like a play on model in there. And, uh, you know, the, the cover is like a, a little <laughs> bit of a, a, a pinup sort of vibe. And, and I wanted it to be that because I think like the tradition, especially in comedy for Asian men is to be sort of, you know, the, the dickless clown. And that's not how I felt. And, um, that's not how I feel anymore. And, um, I, I felt, um, I wanted the challenge. It's, it's way harder to, to get people on your side when you're calling yourself hot. I don't meet a lot of like cultural expectations of what an Asian person should be in this country. You know, like I'm terrible at math. I don't know karate. My dick is huge, you know, so it's just like on and on and on. <laughs> like, oh, God. Just constantly disappointing white people, you know? Um. That's so interesting how the, the way you... The way you behave on stage could actually affect your self-esteem as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you mentioned you you wish you had saved that title for your first special. It does feel like you're you're awfully overdue for a first uh, hour-long special, and I'm I'm sure this past year hasn't helped that process. But what are you? Uh, where are you with that? There's stuff on the horizon that, I, unfortunately, the deadline article hasn't dropped yet. So, I, <laughs> goddamn I can't deadline! Really talk about I was getting it, those but... scoops. Exactly. But yeah, there's there's definitely stuff that was in the works before COVID that had to sort of be uh, put on hold. But, you know, once once things are back up and running again, I hopefully will have some some cool shit to share with the world. Yeah. The other project that I'm really curious about is uh, is Trip, which was uh, your your Quibi show. Hulu actually picked up the project from Quibi. So they sort of rescued that project for and out of out of quibi hell and um it's you know we're shooting it this summer and i'm really fucking excited um that i still get to make it yeah so yeah i mean for anyone who doesn't know this was a show that you were supposed to have on quibi which which we all know uh what happened that's a whole other documentary that needs to happen yeah right um so uh so yeah i mean can you can you talk a little bit about what the show is and and yeah i mean it's a it's a gay rom-com um, and it's it's a it's a gay rom com produced by a major American studio, which is not something that happens often. Um, you know, Hulu just did Happiest Season, which was a gay Christmas rom com, um, and they're sort of following it up with my movie. That is, um, it's a modern day sort of retelling of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, a la sort of what uh, Amy Heckerling did with Clueless and and Emma. Um, and it's it's just like a fun romp um, that takes place on Fire Island, which is a big old gay destination vacation place island that <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sick of movies that are about coming out. I'm sick of movies that are about gay trauma um, and nothing but gay trauma. Like a Fire Island is such an iconic locale to um, the gay community. And it's only ever been featured in movies about AIDS, about like, um, murder. <laughs> and, um, when it's really not, a, quite a joyful place. Yeah. It's, it's quite a joyful place. And my experience of going has never involved AIDS or murder. <laughs> so, you know, I really wanted to celebrate that place and its history and what it means to me and my friends in the film so that, you know, it gets its due. It's, 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 you know, it's the fucking fifth character of the show of the movie <laughs> is, is the Island itself. So hopefully we'll do it justice. And it's you and, and Bo and Yang. Yeah. 
uh, Bone Yang is, is currently attached to it as well. And it's, you know, a lot of it is based off of our own, our very real life experiences going to the island. And I'm excited because it's also, you know, like you don't see a lot of movies like starring two gay Asian men. I, you I actually certainly can't don't. Think, <laughs> I can't think of one. So um, it's really exciting. It is as much about it as it's not about that. And it, we just get to be sort of people and not, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's amazing. It's interesting. I mean, so I, I didn't realize it's going to be a movie because it was going to be a Quibi show, a Quibi, which is yeah. these, which was, I guess it would have been like a movie in, in tiny in segments. Parts, yeah. But did you always kind of imagine it as a movie? Uh, It started as a show sold to Quibi. And then when the Quibification process happened, it became more of a structurally <laughs> a movie um, because back, it, you know, Quibi historians will remember that, um, everybody gets their shit back um, from Quibi after two years. That was part of the deal. Yeah. And so the plan was always to get it back from Quibi and recut it as a movie eventually anyways. And so this just sort of took that uh, process and, um, you know, cut out the middleman. So um, the movie was always, it was always structured. It was always close to being a movie anyways after Quibi. Um, So it wasn't a, a ton of work to turn it into a movie for Hulu. Yeah, well, I think you. I think that worked out for the best for you that uh, Quibi disappeared before you made it. No, I keep saying the pandemic is sort of the best thing that ever happened to me, um, <laughs> just in terms of this project alone. I mean, everything else, trash, uh, garbage, awful, like, traumatic. But this, this I got really lucky. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to seeing it when you when you get to make it. So I also wanted to ask you about some of the uh, some of the shows that you've written for over the years, because um, you've written for some of my favorite shows um, on TV. Um, and I wanted to start with uh, your work, which I, I didn't realize until I was kind of researching you a little bit before this on Billy on the Street, which is just such a must be such a unique job writing really, for that really show. Was. How um, did you, uh, how'd you end up working with, with Billy Eichner and, and what was that like? I submitted a packet like everybody else. It was a blind submission. Um, you just write a bunch of games and, um, some of the games that I wrote in my packet actually made it to air. I, um, Death Rogan was one of them, <laughs> which uh, was Seth Rogan running around telling, uh, Billy telling people that Seth Rogan had died. Um, meanwhile, Seth Rogan was standing at pretending to be a cameraman and just <laughs> so got the experience of seeing how strangers react to his death, um, which was pretty fun. I am out here on the street today with Seth Rogen. We're about to hit the street for a very special segment I like to call Death Rogen. We've lost so many great artists this year who don't live long enough to see all the many profound ways that people pay tribute to them after they're gone. So we decided that we're gonna hit the street with Seth. He's gonna be trailing behind me dressed as one of my cameramen. I'm going to tell people that Seth Rogen has suddenly died so that Seth can experience what their reaction is while he is still around. Are you ready, Seth? I am ready. It's Death Rogen, let's go. Miss, miss, um, sorry, uh, Seth Rogen passed away. Any thoughts? Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen, doesn't ring a bell. Okay, thank you. It was my first television writing gig, and it was the thing that I left my day job for. So it always hold a special place in my heart. It was a little scary, though, because the way the, stru- the writer's room was structured is they like to bring in new people. So you work for a week. And then at the end of the week, you found out if they were going to ask you back for another week. It's like a reality show. 
Yeah, it really, <laughs> it really was. It really, there was a lot of pressure. There were three full-time writers that like had job security. And then the rest of us sort of um, were, were on pins and needles for the entire week. And I, I was lucky enough to work, I think, six weeks um, out, of, uh, out of however many weeks um, there were on that show. But it's a lot. And Billy's a great boss. Um, but he definitely, it's his voice. Everything you write sort of goes through the Billy filter to make it his own. And then I imagine not, it doesn't seem like it's, that much of it could be scripted. So then there's that aspect too. A lot more of it is than than you think. I mean, at least almost all the jumping off points for the for a dollar questions. A lot of that is all stuff that we wrote. And then of course, like any back and forth with Billy is 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 completely all him. I mean, he's the man's a genius. So um, it's hard to compete with that brain. And and someone else working on a gay rom com right now. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's the ba- it's the new space race. Who's gonna who's, who's gonna release first? theirs yeah. first? Yeah, yeah, that'll be <laughs> another show that you worked on that I love is Big Mouth, um, which I know that that everyone who works on that show that there's a lot of you know personal experience that kind of ends up in the show. So, is there were there things that you that you brought to to the writers' room on that show that that ended up in the yeah. On screen? Um, there's a ton of stuff in there, little bits and pieces, I think in, in various different characters that ends up, I mean, the, the first couple of weeks of that writer's room is literally just us shooting the shit, talking about our childhood. And it's, it's therapeutic in a, yeah, in a, in a I way, can imagine. um, just to, to work out all of your childhood trauma at work every day. Um, but yeah, there's tons of stuff in there. I mean, there's, especially I think with Matthew, the, the main gay character on the show. There's a lot of stuff about his coming out experience that, you know, both myself and Gabe Liebman and Jabuki Young-White and Brandon Kyle Goodman, all of us, all of the gay writers, like really pooled our, our individual experiences of coming out and as, as kids and being closeted as kids um, and poured it into that character. So there's, there's, it's a hodgepodge of, of a lot of different gay male experiences for sure. Was there ever anything that, uh, you know, on a show like that where you kind of saw something in a script or noticed something that was kind of going in a direction and, and maybe suggested it going a different way? Um, I can't think of, I know that there, there, the thing about Nick and, um, Andrew and Mark and Jen, who are the other EPs on the show is that they're extremely open to that kind of stuff. And I like, they're really like really, really great bosses in that regard. They definitely are, are very open to hearing sort of like, Hey, like, I actually think that this doesn't do this, this character service from this you know, perspective and stuff like that, because they all know that they're like old white people. Um, and they're very aware <laughs> yeah. of that. And they want to be, they want to make sure that it feels real and, and respectful and of all the characters that are happening, you know, on, on the screen. Yeah. Well, it's a great show and yeah, it must've been a pretty fun one to work on. The other one that I wanted to ask you about um, is the other two, which I think is like just one of the most underrated, hilarious comedies that everyone should seek out if they haven't seen it because it's so funny. I'm so glad it got on HBO Go or, or yeah, HBO, HBO Max, Max. Um, because I feel like it was so hard for people to find it when it was just on Comedy Central. That Comedy Central stuff can be hard to find. Um, so I'm I'm really grateful that it's there and people get to see it because it's such a weird show. It's such a like there there isn't quite anything like it. I think I mean I, not to toot our own horn here, but I do think that it's a really really special show. And there's just yeah, it, it was a blast to work on and. That is a show that has so meant much of of me and the entire writers' room in it, little bits and pieces and like conversations about stuff that like for it to air on Comedy Central, to, for it to air on television alone. I mean, there's a, there's a full conversation about like 
the etiquette of bottoming in the late season um, show. And that's like something that was so personal that we spent so much time crafting and talking about in the room that I couldn't believe when I saw it on TV. Because it's a conversation that happens daily in, in the gay male experience and um, has never been sort of explored on screen before. So it was really, really wild to see that happen. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing where you, you're pitching it or writing it and then you sit, you're thinking that it's not actually going to make it in the show? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, there's a lot of stuff that didn't actually make it into the show, but uh, there's, you know, we fought for a lot of the stuff. Every, every, like, uh, every sort of left of center, um, weird, goofy joke, like, you know, we definitely fought to keep in. And there's a lot of work involved in that. And Chris and Sarah definitely advocated for the show's weirdness in a way that I think made it as special as it is. Is that show coming back? Do you know? or is It is. I think they're shooting it right now. I didn't write on the second season of the show, but it definitely is coming back. It just, you know, COVID and other stuff, I think, um, pushed it farther and farther out. But it's definitely coming back. No, that's great that it's going to, yeah, because for a while it seemed like it was not going to happen, I think. But but yeah, but I'm glad that, that that'll get more. Um, something else just from this past year that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I was looking at your uh, your Twitter account and you you tweeted in July of 2020 about being bipolar and, and opening up about that. What prompted you to to make that public and, and talk about it? Honestly, I mean, it's, it's sort of alluded to it in the tweet, but I think like, you know, this was right around the time that Kanye was having a, a massive sort of public meltdown. Um, and, you know, a lot of questions about his sort of diagnosis were, were coming up about him being bipolar and stuff like that. And it was really frustrating to me because I think like, we only know about people who are bipolar when they're having massive public meltdowns. You know, that's the only time we talk about it. We, we don't see, like, my experience is pretty normal. I'm medicated. I'm in therapy. I live a pretty normal life. And my job aside, you know, I think it's important for people to know that because it definitely is a part of my life, but it is not the only, it doesn't, it doesn't define me. And, and I think that like, it's important for people to see that represented in, in the media as much as it's hard to fight against the Kanye's of the world, but you know, even like seeing Kanye as the, the face of that. Yeah. The poster child for being bipolar. It didn't, it didn't sit well with me. I mean, and his journey is his journey. And I, I you know, I hope he's doing okay. And I hope he's taking care of himself. But I, I think the conversation around him became one that made me super uncomfortable and I wanted to sort of break up the, the static a little bit. Besides Trip, which is obviously, you know, going to be a, a huge next thing for you, are there other sort of, um, you know, goals or, or things that you're really uh, wanting to do or excited to do that maybe you'll, you'll finally get to do once things are a little bit more back to normal? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of taking a step back from writing for other people and I'm, I'm trying to sell my own stuff, my own show. I really want to be a showrunner. I want to be, um, you know, like Aziz or Issa Rae or, or, you know, people like that who are sort of have their hands in a lot of different pots. And so I'm trying to, that's the next step, I think, for me is to my own shit and not do somebody else's. So this podcast is called The Last Laugh, and we like to end with the first laugh, which this would be the the first comedian or piece of comedy that that really made you laugh when you when you think back to to your early days of of experiencing comedy. What do you what do you think of? Uh, it's Madeline Kahn in this movie, What's Up Doc, um, that stars Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. And it was Madeline Kahn's first movie. 
there's just a moment where she's dragged out of a ballroom and it is one of the earliest memories I can have of, of like really, really fucking laughing my ass off. And, you know, Madeline Kahn is life-changing and has been since. And then what is the, uh, what's the, the first joke that you can remember telling on stage that, that really worked or really, uh, got a, got a big laugh in a way that, that felt really good. I mean, pony comes to mind, but I'll try. There's one joke that I remember telling that I, I can't believe I, I haven't really revisited. I haven't tried to use it since, but it was in that from that very, very first set um, that I ever did that. I, and I never and this was I, I have to also say that for the first like six months of doing comedy, I thought you weren't allowed to do old j- jokes. Like I thought <laughs> like you had night to write. To night. I thought, yeah, I thought you had to write five new minutes every night. Um, so I have a lot of, a lot of terrible material. Um, but this joke did well. I probably taught you a lot about writing though. Uh, yeah, it did. It was a real boot camp. but the joke is basically like I had a friend in college who compared Asian men to, uh, chihuahuas. And he said like, you know, everybody loves to be around a chihuahua and they're fun to, to pet, but nobody wants to fuck a chihuahua. And that... (laughs) And the joke is sort of like, well, what kind of like nobody wants to fuck any dog, you yeah. fucking idiot. Like, what are you? What is the analogy here? It sort of goes off the rails. And um, that is um, that I remember was like the first joke that got a really big pop in the set. Um, I can't, yeah, that's as close to the wording as I can remember it, but it's probably a little <laughs> bit better. And then finally, what's the the last thing that you've seen that made you laugh really hard? Whether it's a, another comedian, um, someone you want to shout out, something you've watched on on TV. The last thing that's probably made me laugh really hard is Jacqueline Novak and Kate Berlant's podcast Poog. Oh, yeah, they're so funny. Those two are two of the funniest people um, alive currently. And the fact that they have a podcast is a blessing to us all. And yeah, it just I was listening to it earlier right before I got on here and it, it, it kills me every time. It's a great recommendation. Well, Joel, thank you so much for, for doing this. And it was really, uh, really fun talking to you. And yeah, I, thanks I'm for really looking me. forward to uh, everything that you have coming up and including the, the movie. And that's very exciting news. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Joel Kim Booster for being my guest on today's show. You can listen to his episodes of the Flame Out podcast on Spotify and subscribe to Urgent Care wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.